I wanted to let the two of you know that I am sitting this episode out. Is the Mac Pro out? No, no, God, holy crap, no. Don't even mess with my emotions like that, please. Uh, I made the mistake of starting but not finishing Merlin-style El Camino, which is the Breaking Bad Netflix movie. And I'm only about halfway through, and I really want to finish it, so I'm just going to be quiet this one. I saw that the other day, too. Do I have to have seen Better Call Saul? Because I haven't. No, but you have to have seen Breaking Bad. Yeah, I've seen Breaking Bad. Not recently. Like, when it was out, I saw it. Same. <laughs> you might want a refresher, because there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in it that they don't really spend time explaining to you who this person is. You just have to kind of remember. So you might want to read a recap. So, not a joke. Uh, first of all, I have not seen Better Call Saul, and I've heard it's tremendous, but I have not seen it. Uh, secondly, I also watched Breaking Bad most recently when it was ending, and I really wasn't sure uh, how I was going to remember everything, because I can barely remember what I ate for dinner tonight. And what I thought to do, which seems so far to have worked out really well, is I went to Wikipedia. Don't laugh yet. I went to Wikipedia and went to Jesse Pinkman's Wikipedia page and read his character biography. And I feel like that reasonably caught me up as as you know in in the five minutes i spent to read this it did a pretty good job of giving me the blow by blow and reminding me of all the things that that he and walt had gotten into and so i recommend doing that as a poor man's a poor person's way of like catching yourself up is this the movie that shows like what happened to him afterwards basically Mm -hmm. okay it's not a i i i can't say i like it as much as i liked breaking bad although breaking bad What a roller coaster, man. Like, it was such a great show, and I loved it, but it did not leave me feeling great. Oh, no, it was was very heavy. It was like, it was such a just massively heavy show. Like, it was, like, it was one of those things, like, you know, I I could, I I really enjoyed it overall, but I could only watch, like, one or two episodes at a time. (laughs) Like, then, like, it's like, Mm -hmm. all right, I'm done for the night. I need to watch something else. And then, like, I think what happened was, like, you know, in, uh, towards the end of 2016, um, the mood of the world took a negative turn. And ever since then, I haven't really been able to watch like heavy, dark shows. I, I don't, I just don't enjoy it. I don't, I don't want to feel more that way than, you know, we already do as a society. So uh, I just, I haven't been able to get back into shows like that yet. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, Aaron and I watched the first two or three seasons. I'm sure I've told the story before, but we watched the first two or three seasons together. And then uh, at some point, she looked over at me after watching a particularly intense episode, which is hard to say because they're all intense. But we watched a particularly intense episode. And she looked over at me and she just had this like kind of puzzled look on her face. I'm like, whoa, what's wrong? And she said, this doesn't make me happy. I don't think I'm going to watch this anymore. <laughs> and that was that. And the funny thing about it was she was invested enough that she would ask me to give her like the extraordinarily quick summary of what happened as I continued to watch. But uh, but yeah, it, it is not a show that makes you happy, although it is definitely an unbelievable piece of filmmaking. And El Camino, I, I, the, which is the movie that they just released uh, on Netflix a week or two ago, I definitely am enjoying it quite a bit. I'm definitely on the edge of my seat quite a bit, but it I wouldn't say it's necessarily recaptured the magic 100%, but that's to be expected. Yeah, it's, it's like a middle-of-the-road, uh, longer-than-usual episode of Breaking Bad, basically. It's yeah, definitely, that seems definitely didn't need to be a movie. It, you know, it's like an epilogue episode, but they had more time, so it kind of takes its time getting where it's going. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I could get back into that mindset. Like it was, it was such a different time. Like it wasn't that long ago, but like it was a different time. Like things have changed a lot since then. What has Aaron Paul been up to? He was in that uh, car or something, or was it Need for Speed? 
Uh, he was in some car racing movie that was actually surprisingly enjoyable. Uh, and then I haven't seen anything from him other than that. He's a great actor. I, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why I kept why I like stayed in that show uh, as a as a watcher, even though it was awful, even at the time it was darker than I normally would have enjoyed, um, yeah, same. because it was just so well made, it was so well written, and it was so well acted. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. And I actually think it's very, very well filmed. I am not a good critic of these sorts of things. So for all I know, they're they're either using all the like rookie tricks in the book or it's just, you know, saccharine that that, you know, oh, this is the sort of thing that an, an uneducated person would think is is beautiful. But may or maybe it's legitimately beautiful. I don't know. Maybe John can weigh in. But one way or another, I think it is a very pretty show in the same way that like Top Gear for all of the things that you could say that are terrible about Top Gear, most all of which are deserved. One thing I think you can't take away from it was how pretty it was and Breaking Bad. And so far, uh, uh, El Camino seems to be the same. Anyway, so I'm going to, I'm going to skip the rest of the episode. You guys have fun. John, tell me if I had a TiVo because I was clinging to 2002, uh, how would I opt out of the pre-roll ads? not easy uh i mean this this art the title of this article wants to make you think uh, they're going to tell you how to opt out of tivo pre-roll ads but if you read the article it's like oh none of these things sound like things i really want to do i mean the only one that makes some amount of sense is downgrading to the old version of their little os uh, because the old version will not be getting pre-roll ads uh so even if you get involuntarily upgraded like i did it is possible to roll back to the old version if you don't mind losing all of your recordings, which kind of sucks, right? And that's the best option. <laughs> the, the, another option is you can call them and beg, and apparently if you are persuasive, they will sort of opt you out, but it's unknown whether this is a permanent opt-out or just appeasing an angry customer opt-out, and doesn't seem like that's a scalable solution. And then, you know, the final option they list here is like, maybe we'll figure something out. Maybe you could, uh, you know, piehole the DNS for... The ad server, who knows? It's a grim situation, but in case you are one of the other 25 TiVo users left in the world and are wondering about this, we'll put the link in the show notes. Can I uh, have a quick moment about Piehold? We did not talk about this yet on the show, did we? Nope. Okay, good. I didn't think so. Um, I A few months ago, I or maybe it was a year ago now, a while ago, I discovered Docker. Yes, welcome to 2014, I'm aware. I still haven't, don't worry. <laughs> See, thank you, Mark. That, that genuinely does make me feel a little bit better. Um, but I discovered Docker and I discovered Homebridge. And I was aware of both of them existing, but I didn't ever think to put both of them together. And so my Synology, which I love very much, um, it has Docker support on my particular Synology, which is the same one that you two have. And so I put a Docker container of Homebridge on my Synology, and now I can control with some amount of reliability. I can control uh, HomeKit or non-HomeKit stuff with HomeKit, which is really great. Well, I don't remember how I got it in my head, but one way or another, I decided recently, oh, you know what? I should try that pie hole thing because I've heard that's really, really good. And my very limited understanding, and jump in either of you when you're ready, is that this was a, this is a DNS server that's designed to be run on a Raspberry Pi. And so it's really lean and really, really quick. And the idea is you set your home network or perhaps just one computer to use the Pi-hole as your DNS server, and then it will simply ignore or not resolve uh, DNS or you know, host names for 
things that they know are nothing but advertisements. So it's sort of a network-level ad blocker, which is really, really interesting. And sure enough, there's a Docker container for the Synology that lets you set up PyHole. And it took me like five minutes. And then I, you know, tweaked my network such that uh, the, the network is issuing the PyHole address as the DHC, or excuse me, as the DNS server. And so far, about a week in, it seems to be working pretty well. And there's only been a couple of occasions that I've needed to temporarily disable it in order to get a website to work again. Uh, I am really, really pleased with it. I'll, I'll probably write it up on my website at some point or another. But if you're if you're into if you're looking for an, a reason to get a Raspberry Pi, which I actually am, but I also already have a computer running all the time, and that's my Synology. Uh, you know, Pi Hole in a Docker container. It's a pretty sweet setup, and it was not hard to set up at all. That's interesting, like because like I've I've never used any of the any of the various like network wide ad blocker methods. You know, usually which involve DNS uh, type things like this, and because I'm always afraid that it'll just break stuff. Because like every ad blocker I've ever used or written has always <laughs> has always broken stuff. And I've always needed some kind of like you know temporary disable thing. Now with Pi-hole, like how how much of a pain in the butt is it to temporarily bypass it? Okay, so here's where I'm going to lose everyone. Oh no! So so just mm. it does it right. is temporarily well, bypassing it like just changing your DNS back? Uh, no, no. I suppose you could do it that way, but uh, but no, that is not that is not the solution I use. Good. So. Um, so the way that that I have been doing it, which is perfect for me, but terrible for anyone else in the house, namely Aaron, is that it's actually got a really robust web interface that, among other things, lets you disable it for, um, you know, 30 seconds, I think like five seconds, 30 seconds, or, you know, basically until uh, you decide to turn it back on. Let me see. I'm signing in now. Disable for 10, 30, 10 or 30 seconds, five minutes, a custom amount of time, or just straight up turn it off for a while. And I got to say, this this web interface is really, really, really good. And it's it works surprisingly well, given how lean and mean this thing is. And it shows... So I have 27 clients and... 31,790 queries, of which 2,545 of them were blocked, which is 8%. And there are 113,447 domains on the block list. And it shows you pretty graphs and things of that nature. Um, but the problem is you have to be able to like log into this thing in order to disable it for a little while. And you're disabling it for the entire network rather than for one host. Now, somebody on Twitter had sent me a workflow or shortcuts shortcut that you're supposed to be able to just run and, you know, after you've plugged in your, you know, like uh, API key, if you will, and, and so on and so forth. And it would disable it via this shortcut, which would be perfect for me and Aaron, actually. But I couldn't get it to work in the brief amount of time I played with it. So I guess that's many words to say there must be a, a mechanisms by which you can do an easy temporary disable because there's APIs and things of that nature. But the one that I'm familiar with, I couldn't get to work and I haven't really given it a, 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 a real honest shake yet. So I need to go back and reevaluate. But I am really, really pleased with this so far. Now, the problem with this, this, though, is what happens when I'm outside my home network, you know, because this is only providing DNS for my intranet. It does not provide DNS to the internet. And I suppose what I could do is expose this publicly, which seems like a 
terrible decision. And so um, I think what for now I'm going to do is if I'm really browsing the web remotely and really am getting annoyed by ads, I'll just hop on my VPN into the house and then I will get that DNS server back and then everything should work as as it as it does in the house in theory although to be fair i have not val- validated that yet but in general it's whether or not piehole is your you your thing and i'm saying that not only to marco but the listener whether or not piehole is your thing i cannot say enough good things about docker and how unbelievably easy it is to get some entirely complex software stack up and running in almost no time john you're using docker at work for like actual work things right or am i making that up Yep, I am. Anything I've said wrong or anything you'd like to add in general? Mm, some things about Docker annoy me, but I think it's true of anything you have to use for work eventually. You <laughs> get to find all the things that annoy you about it, but it's fine. Um, Jeff Atwood had an article about Pi-hole, uh from a year or two ago. Uh, no, six actually, months ago. He, yeah, he actually used a Raspberry Pi like hardware, which was part of the, the fun project nature of it to get a cute little computer next to his router with a little tiny screen on it anyway if you're if you're interested in a uh, another person's experience and kind of a setup guide uh, we'll put that link in the show notes too Oh, and they're actually in that uh, it is a really good screenshot of the uh, web interface that I was talking about. So if you go to uh, Jeff Atwood's uh, link in the show notes, it's codinghorror.com. Uh, we'll, if you scroll down a bit, you'll see the piehole interface. And I don't know, I, I just maybe I'm easily amused, but I, it, it's a very good looking and pretty easy to use uh, interface for something that I believe is just an open source project that nobody's making any real money off of. So I just think that's super cool when a, when a whole bunch of nerds can come together and do something nice. We are brought to you this week by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com slash ATP and enter offer code ATP at checkout to get 10% off. Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Now look, these days, Everything needs a website. Every project, every business, every hobby, every person, we all need websites to show off our work or to sell our goods or to just start something creative. Websites are really a dime a dozen these days, but for yours to stand out, you need to be really nice. And to make a really nice website used to take a lot of work and a lot of skill and a lot of money. And Squarespace takes all of those needs away. It's a great price. It takes no skill. No matter what your skill level is, you don't have to be a coder or a designer or anything. You can make a super professional-looking site with Squarespace in almost no time at all. You know, even if you're a total novice or even if you're an expert, you, know, you, can, you don't have to spend your time you know, nitpicking and coding everything or installing software. You never have to worry about updates or patches or even like security problems with like that come with hosting your own servers. Squarespace takes care of all of that for you. If you need any support, they have wonderful, award-winning 24-7 support. And you can see for yourself with all of this with no credit card required because you can start a free trial and build your entire site without ever giving them a credit card. When you decide to sign up, make sure to head to squarespace.com slash ATP and use offer code ATP to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com slash ATP, code ATP for 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Speaking of home networking stuff, I don't know if this is really a topic or not. but Yes, I, uh... actually, I didn't put it in the show notes. I meant to ask you about this. I'm glad you brought it up. What are you up to, man? So I just basically just upgraded all my home networking gear. Um, all right, now can we can we pause? Can you just give a like quick executive summary of what the gear was, and then let's talk about what the new stuff is? Sure. So um, here, you know, I have home network here. Originally, I set this up 
about eight years ago. So I've gone through a couple of routers in that time, but the one I've been using for the last probably five years or so is the Ubiquiti uh, Edge Router Lite 3. This little like black $100 thing uh, that has been rock-solid reliable and really got me started on on the Ubiquiti bandwagon. The Switch uh, has been this... Rock solid HP eighteen something rack mount switch. I think eighteen fifteen. I don't know some some kind of HP eighteen port or twenty four port, whatever it was. Uh, you know, big big HP rack mount switch. And those have been running rock solid reliable for many many years. And then for Wi Fi, I would plug in in recent years basically whatever the uh, ubiquity uh, access points were that were available at the time. And I started out with one and then went to two and then went to three as like I identified various, you know, bad spots in my house. Um, and this was all this was all before like, you know, modern home consumer friendly mesh stuff like Eero, um, sponsor of our show frequently, I should disclose. Uh, but anyway, so uh, and, and I should I should clarify all of my Eero experience has been in other houses besides this one. <laughs> so the beach, in-laws, stuff like that. So what drove this for me, what drove this upgrade was that once you have multiple access points, uh, sometimes clients will do weird things with like whether they will roam between them properly or whether they'll like hold on to one bad connection for you know rather than roaming onto the one better one. Most of the stuff is dramatically improved if you have newer hardware and newer you know software behind it and everything like on the router end to be able to like roam clients with these newer standards and things like that. I also just wanted a speed upgrade on my um, on my access points and and I also and. Ubiquity does this weird thing where like they require you to run controller software to set certain things up to make certain changes and to enable certain features uh, and you don't have to run it if you don't need to make certain changes or you don't need to enable certain features um, and so and you have to run it like on a computer or something and I had long abandoned whatever computer was running this. I couldn't run it anymore <laughs> on my Mac Mini because it required Java and all this crazy stuff. So I'm like, all right. And they have sold for years now these little things called cloud keys that are basically just little, they're basically Raspberry Pis like <laughs> pre-made uh, to run their software, to run this this like controller software on. Um, and since then, they've also had this, you know, huge new generation of new switches and new routers. They're the new um, the security gateway line of routers. This was all like this all came out after I had made my setup. I decided, you know what? Let me just upgrade everything to all new stuff. I'll I'll go all ubiquity this time. Uh, even though my HP switch has been rock solid and still works totally fine, but I figured I'll get, I'll get ubiquity switch because that'll save me a bunch of wires because now it has power over Ethernet built in. Ah, let nice. me so, so basically, so what I got was a twenty uh, four port power over Ethernet switch. Uh, uh, security gateway as the router, the security key two as the controller. Uh, so I, I got it all set up today, and this is still like you know the ubiquity line of things is still very much for nerds. Uh, however, it is way nicer now if you go all in the way I did, like with all the all the most modern stuff that all supports power over Ethernet to the newest standards. It all supports their software controller thing. And so, like, I didn't have to log into the router and the switch separately. I didn't have to log into every access point to configure it separately. All I had to do was log into the controller, the little cloud key thing, and it configured the router for me and all the APs and everything. Like, it, you, you basically just log into one thing and it controls everything. It controls all their software updates, all their settings, it coordinates the Wi Fi network between all the access points. Like, it's so much easier now than it used to be. And so 
if you are in the in the market for very nerdy pro grade uh, networking gear, all the new ubiquity stuff is really nice and really awesome. And so I got it all set up. I got all my devices named in the control panel and everything. Like all all fancy, got all set here. I'm very happy with it. Obviously, it's only been like 12 hours, so maybe you know, maybe if things go wrong, <laughs> I'll let you know in a future episode. But um, I'm I'm all ubiquity here at home, and 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 this it certainly it's worth considering or it's worth asking like you know why this kind of crazy overkill setup instead of something like an Euro system. The reality is for most people, the answer is just get something like the Euro system because <laughs> you don't need something like this. And truth is, you know, need is, is a fun word in nerddom. I don't need this either. <laughs> it allows a certain degree of flexibility, first of all. I don't need to upgrade the the entire component system at once now. Like, as I've done over the last, I don't know, five years that I've been running Ubiquity Gear, like, as new standards can come out for things like faster Wi-Fi, I can just replace the access points and and maybe not even all of them instead of having to like buy a whole new router and a whole new system and everything like that. Um, I can do certain certain cool things. Like I mentioned I have three access points. One of them is in my garage. And I can I can have a separate network that runs only on that one that my car can pull its software updates off of because my car is not good at picking the best Wi-Fi network and, <laughs> and will often like pick the furthest away access point in the house if it's if it's on the same SSID. So like you can do things like have certain certain SSIDs that only broadcast among certain access points, stuff like that. And so, like, there's just it, there's a, a an even greater level of control and nerdery and separation of concerns here than what you get with any kind of consumer system. That's the whole point of these enterprise systems. Not to mention like reliability and and capacity and and you know ability to deal with interference and certain things and you know certain traffic patterns better because they're just they're made for way higher density and higher needs usage than what my house is likely to have. It's a really nice overkill setup. And if and when I eventually upgrade to Casey's degree of Fios that is gigabit both ways, uh, I'm going to be happy to think, have things like a faster router, you know, more packet capacity and all this, all this, this other stuff. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully never thinking about it again, because that's, that's like, that's what ubiquity lets you do basically is like you set up your stuff and, you have like one fun nerdy day of figuring out how it all works and then you can just forget about it. You never have to like reboot anything. Like it's just, it's just rock solid. So I'm hoping all this new stuff is as rock solid as all my old stuff was. You know, I've got that Fios too now. I think you've got the slow internet connection among us. Oh yeah, look at that. Yeah, mine's only 150, but... 150? Oh my goodness. That's awful. I don't know how you live. It, it was the fastest at the time. Well, and that's... <laughs> when when I got it like seven years ago, that was the fastest they offered. It works perfectly. I never yeah. have problems. So the last thing I want to do is call Verizon over to change something. Yeah, I know. I bit that bullet recently too. I think I had it for a similar length of time to you. Uh, anyway, I, mine, mine maxed out at 75. So I was stuck at 75. I, I couldn't yeah, get any same. faster with the box i had and eventually i just i had to do it and it, it turned out fine it was ridiculous they replaced the my like original fios box which was just massive it was like the size of a uh i don't know like a, a rebel lion's backpack on hoth that's how, <laughs> how big it was it, it was huge um and they replaced that with a tiny box like you know maybe the size of a lunchbox and the only thing inside the box is a even tinier thing that looks like like an eight port switch velcroed inside there. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Like, like whatever it was before, it was like this bespoke special custom thing with all these electronics, and it's just basically replaced by like some little thing. You looks like you could buy it off Amazon. I don't know what it actually is, but it's it's comical. Um, 
Right, question about your your setup though is is your garage climate controlled in any way uh no because I'm, I'm wondering what like the safe operating temperature range is for that equipment right and so and you know if you look it up it'll tell you you know it's, some, it's something like you know five degrees to 100 and something degrees you know it, it's, it never gets below five in your garage no so this so this as far as i know so my garage is not insulated but it does close <laughs> and <laughs> and the walls are made of cinder blocks and it's it touches my house on top, back, and side. So like three of the, you know, I guess five surfaces that could be exterior exposed aren't. They're, they're you know, attached to my house. So it has some degree of temperature isolation from the outside world. In my experience running, running this gear in my garage for the last, you know, eight years, it has not been a problem yet. I even run my Synology out there. And part of the reason why is, you know, obviously just by being not outside and by being attached to a house and having a, a big, thick, you know, old wood door that closes and everything, like, it's not going to get as cold as it does outside. You know, if it's zero degrees outside, unless it's been zero degrees outside for, like, two weeks straight, my garage is going to be, you know, much, much higher than that. Uh, it's, it's not going to be warm, but it's not going to be zero. You might need another internal combustion engine car to warm up that garage. <laughs> <for you. laughs> and then also, I figure, like, this gear operates 24-7. So it never really has a chance to cool down. You know, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not storing it in zero-degree rooms off and then trying to power it on. Like, so, and then, so I, I think that also helps with, like, with things like condensation and everything. Um, so I, I keep everything there uh, for networking, the, the switch, the router. The, I have uh, two UPSs for various reasons. I have a, and I have the Synology running all the hard drives in there. 24-7, year-round, and it hasn't been a problem yet. I haven't lost a single hard drive in the Synology yet. Knock on whatever wood this is. I haven't, uh, you know, lost any networking gear to to heat or anything. It seems fine. Well, my second Synology had a had a bad disk. It wasn't it wasn't bad yet, but Synology does those disk health checkups, and it would like email you and says, "Hey, I found a bad sector." And I've been like ignoring it for two years, and eventually, it's like, <laughs> you know, I really found a lot of bad sectors on this disk. I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so i just and it's the what those were the drives i ended up replacing because i just replaced both of them because why it was just a two drive my little two drive synology mm-hmm. um they weren't the western digital reds they were just something else like just regular consumer hard drive so anecdotal data for those you know designed for nas bs overpriced drives actually outliving the standard consumer models i replaced them with uh western digital reds well, I am uh, I am jealous of your networking setup, but not your connection to the rest of the world. So you win some, you lose some. <laughs> but it's rock solid. <laughs> I don't doubt that. Truth be told, and and I don't think they're a sponsor of this episode, are they? Uh, no. Uh, truth be told, my Euro setup has actually been very, very good. I had a little bit of a hiccup with uh, localhost loopback. Uh, you know, so if I if I went to a host name that resolved to itself there was a like month or two window of time where that was having some problems but outside of that which by the way has since been fixed it's been pretty darn solid i've been really happy with the euro so uh and you know they're not paying us to say that so that's pretty cool yeah like like you know like i've used euro in you know again my in-laws place and vacation houses and it's been totally great that's why i keep using it for those places yep Um, oh and one other thing to disclose on the uh ubiquity stuff the rack mount stuff that i got has very loud fans so the, in my garage, this is fine. If you're looking for something for like a home office, I mean, you should be accustomed to the fact that one U rack mount stuff usually has very loud fans. But in this case, that holds. They, it has very loud fans. So, you know, use caution. 
We are sponsored this week by ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com slash ATP for three extra months free with a one-year package. Now, I got to say, when I'm using someone else's Wi-Fi network, whether it's like, you know, an airport network or a hotel or something like that when I'm traveling, I don't feel comfortable using someone else's Wi-Fi without a VPN. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN provider by review sites like TechRadar and CNET. They are the fastest and most reliable. If you're ever using someone else's Wi-Fi, you should use a VPN. And you should probably use ExpressVPN. It's really, really good. And this is the best way to ensure that your data is encrypted. Because, you know, you have things like HTTPS, you have things like other types of encryption, but you don't have it on everything. It isn't perfect. It isn't everywhere. It's best to be safe and have an extra level of encryption. And that's what VPNs give you. And ExpressVPN is the fastest and most reliable, and they take privacy and security to the next level. They invented a technology called Trusted Server to ensure that VPN servers run only from RAM, and no data logs are written to a server's hard drive even by accident. So see for yourself if you want the best in online security and privacy protection, head over to expressvpn.com slash ATP for three extra months free with a one-year package. Protect your internet security today with the VPN that I would strongly recommend when you're traveling, you know, put, put this on your laptop. When you're traveling and using other people's Wi-Fi, you want a VPN. Try ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com slash ATP to get started. Thank you so much to ExpressVPN for sponsoring our show. Let's return to follow-up that, that we were doing three hours ago. Uh, folding phones and form factors. Uh, I don't know which one of you put this in the show notes, but we should call out uh, the most recent episode of Connected 265 entitled, What Are You, a Dictionary? Uh, which was great for a plethora of reasons, but in uh, what's relevant right now is uh, Mike decided to spend an obscene amount of money on the Galaxy Fold, and he spent about a week with it and did a really, really good job of reviewing it, uh, particularly the hardware on that episode, and it is worth listening to, so you should check that out. But I presume one of you, probably John, has thoughts about form factors. Yep, I listened to that episode, and it was interesting to hear what Mike thought of it, how he was using it, how it's holding up, and you know the prospects for it, and so on and so forth. And we talked about folding phones a while ago, and then again with the uh, the most recent episode with the Microsoft Duo and the, and the Neo thing and everything. And I, I had a thought that I think I failed to voice last time we discussed this while listening to Mike talk about uh, his Galaxy Fold thing. Uh, and in particular, he was talking about the, how the outer screen was like too narrow to, to be useful, like in the mm-hmm, folded mm-hmm. form or whatever. Uh, it made me think of, you know, the, the last, the context we were discussing last time was like, is the additional screen space uh, worth the need to unfold your phone when you use it? Uh, and the outer screen, you know, in theory could let you not have to unfold it, but Mike was saying that it was a little bit too narrow. Uh, but the the flip side of that is rather than using folding technology to give you a much larger screen in a small package, I started to think about using folding to take existing sized phones and make them smaller in one or the other dimension while they're in your pocket. Uh, and it, it also kind of like, you know, if we could go back to the thinness race and start getting the phones to be thinner again, you could have a phone that was like the size of an iPhone 11 or iPhone 11 Pro, but folds in one dimension or the other. I was also thinking of it for the those really skinny phones from Essential. They, you know, they look, they look super dumb. But uh, if you could fold an iPhone 11 Pro, A, which way would you want to fold it? And B, would that would that be more useful 
or useful at all as compared to something that's even bigger that folds out to be basically a phablet or, you know, a little miniature tablet. What do you think? Hmm. So so I understand this right. So you're saying take my 11 Pro and make it foldable, but there is an external screen on the smaller version? Let's set aside external screens for now. It's like just say if you could fold it, would you want to fold it uh, like the the long way so it becomes a long skinny like stick of gum or would you want to fold it so it becomes almost square or i guess you could fold it on an angle if you're <laughs> feeling would, a little feisty but that makes no sense i would think i would want it to fold such that it becomes a square but i don't like i'm not really sure why to be honest it's just i mean, I mean like and a, i'm also assuming that like you could save some thickness so it wouldn't actually be twice as thick because if you become a square it would be like a what was that one the uh Game Boy SP, which was the Game Boy that was like square, oh, folded into a little yeah. sandwich. I, I know there was one, but you're asking the wrong people. But regardless, yeah, like it, it was a similar kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think I, I don't know. I think I would go long stick of gum because a square wouldn't allow it to fit that much better in pockets that it wouldn't have fit in before. Whereas a long stick of gum would allow it to, you know, like you know, you only need the pocket to be big in one dimension. Like you can put it in a deep pocket but not necessarily a wide pocket. That, I think, would be more useful in the real world. You could put it in that little change pocket where the uh, iPod <laughs> Nano was, remember? <laughs> no, we can't do that because that's where my AirPods go. Were those special pants that he had made for the presentation? Because like, I don't think... like I have lots of jeans. None of my jeans change pockets would actually hold an iPod Nano in a way that you couldn't see the top of it. I think it's plausible. Uh, unlike most women's clothing, men's clothing tends to have actual pockets that are real and not, you know, like fake pockets that look like their pockets but really don't go down anywhere uh, but but like but I, I, I feel like those had that had to be custom pants because like the change pocket like the width of it that was fair but i feel like he had to have a longer like a deeper pocket yeah, made maybe this is no one see this is what we missed out by not having podcasts back in the day now people weren't <laughs> amusing themselves about this but we could have actually tested it so all right go get a pair of jeans and wear it to the podcast and try uh, <laughs> i mean i suppose they do it on youtube as well I was thinking, like, I like the idea of the long, skinny stick, but I think I'd be frustrated by the unfolding. Like, again, you know, it's the the benefit is, oh, I can fit it in smaller places. I can fit it in a smaller pocket. I, maybe it's easier. Maybe it's easier to take in and out because it's like a little stick instead of a wide thing. You know, if you, sometimes they're, especially for the big phones, like the Mac size, you put it in like a front or a back pocket. And if your pants are tight, you feel like you can't really like squat down or you'll, you'll be bending the thing or whatever. And maybe... It gets a little bit easier if it's skinny and it can slide. I don't know. Uh, but bottom line is, if you don't have any external screen, which you certainly wouldn't if, it, wouldn't if it was skinny and probably wouldn't if it was square, you do have to unfold it to use it at all. And I don't know if the, the again, the size benefit would be worth that. Um, getting back to what Mike said, he like he's all in on the idea of like, I can do more with this more powerful device because I have so much more screen space. It was not just that there was more screen space. He, he talked about, you know, the Android being sort of uh, laissez-faire about multitasking. It's like, you want to have 20 apps running? Fine, have 20 apps. I don't care what you do with your screen. Just have 10 floating windows and three apps running and do whatever, right? Uh, and that's powerful, especially when you have a lot of room for it. So he's using it as like a little miniature computer. He even said that, like, it felt less like a phone and more like a little miniature computer. Um, so if that's what you're going for, certainly you're willing to tolerate the foldingness and the awkwardness or whatever because no other device can give you a, such a huge screen while being pocketable in any form. Because if that did, thing didn't fold, there's no way you could fit it in any of your pockets unless you wore, like, 
those really huge baggy tactical pants things or whatever with like the giant thigh <laughs> pocket or something, or unless you had a custom underscore pocket in your clothing to, to hold your uh, MacBook <laughs> or whatever. Um, anyway, I just was thinking about, it. I still, you know, for the, for the phone, for phone style purposes, using phones like we do today, I'm still struggling to see uh, folding as a net win. But if you want a weird miniature computer that's not a laptop and not a tablet, uh, apparently uh, the Fold has at least one fan in Mike. <laughs> it might be the only one. But we'll see if that thing breaks. I mean, he's had it for like a week or whatever. So I, I'm still, I still have little faith in its durability. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. already been like this whole thing on Twitter of people posting about like the little dots appearing on the crease, basically ruining the screen. Fun. All right. John, tell me if you didn't want to get the chef's knife you were uh, talking about last episode, what should you get instead? Uh, I'm not sure, but it, I referred to the knife as that it's like the OXO good grips of chef's knives. Well, predictably, OXO good grips does, in fact, make a chef's knife. Uh, and we'll put a link in the show notes. You can take a look at it. But I have to say, despite the fact that I'm sure the grip is very pleasing, it doesn't look as good as my knife uh for one reason like the the bolster or whatever the thing where the handle goes into the blade uh on my knife it's like plastic squishy grippy material all the way into the blade whereas this has like a fancier more expensive looking metal bolster and that's not great because i want it to be grippy everywhere i don't want it to transition to slippery stuff and the second thing is the bolster goes all the way down to the end the bottom of the blade so like the back corner of the knife looks like it's not a cutting surface it's just part of the bolster and i don't I don't like that either. I like to use the bottom part of my knife. Anyway, I like my knife better, but if you do want the OXO good grips of knives, they make one, and it's only 20 bucks. <laughs> All right. Uh, Apple apparently has rolled out Siri audio, audio clip grading opt-in, and there's now an ability to request history deletion in the 13.2 and watchOS 6, 6.1 uh, betas. And so this is in response to everyone rightfully losing their minds over Apple people, particularly contractors, uh, listening to our conversations with Siri to evaluate and grade them and so on and so forth. So now things are a little bit different. Tell me, John, what's different about them? I put all the bullet points from the TechCrunch article in here, but I think the bottom line is uh, you have to explicitly opt in and you can opt out at any time. So there's a bunch of other things about how they use transcripts and you know all, all the other stuff, but like giving the user control whereas before there was no awareness and no control now presumably if you listen to tech podcasts you are aware and when these new versions of the os come out you will actually have control um, i think there are more details with like you can opt in on a per message basis or something like that but anyway it's as soon as these versions come out which i think are probably going to be the first versions that we may feel comfortable recommending people use well maybe not the mac os version but like uh, you know, 13, 13.2 <laughs> might so. be safe so I'm running the 13.2 beta, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm having issues with it. The kind of issues that you would have, like, in July during beta season. In beta 2, I would frequently have the volume uh, HUD thing. When you were adjusting volume, like, through a car or Bluetooth controls, the volume HUD would come on screen and then just stay there, and you couldn't dismiss it. It would just be there forever. Um, my more recent challenge with it is that um, Siri just stopped talking, that plays out in a few interesting ways. When you try to set an alarm, it responds to you with total silence, which is not confidence-inspiring for your alarm to wake you up in the morning. <laughs> um, anytime that Siri would uh, speak a response, or it should speak a response, it would just play that, that amount of silence, basically. And the, the UI would 
look like it was speaking and it would just be silent. Um, that also meant that when I was driving using Apple Maps, it failed to use voice directions. Like it failed to speak to me to say, turn right up here because it, whatever is using that same engine. So fortunately I also had Waze, which has its own speech engine, but like the, these are the kind of bugs I'm facing in the 13.2 beta so far. So I'm, but, and these were bugs that like, these are totally new bugs compared to 13.0 at 13.1, like my whole navigation bar bug that made me have a, have to ship a very evasive version of overcast to, uh, to dodge around it. That was a new bug to 13.1, like 13.0 didn't have that bug during its betas. And now the 13.2 bugs are new bugs entirely that, again, like the, the main 13 bits didn't have. So as far as I'm concerned, Apple is still shipping rough beta quality software to all of its customers. And 13.2 doesn't seem to be changing that. Well, but these are 13.2 betas. We have to wait to see 13.2 release to see how much better that is. I'm, I'm continuing. To yeah, look at 13.0 release and 13.1 release, and you can see why I'm a little bit skeptical. I know, but I yeah. I, do you feel like point one is better than point oh? I think the trend is in, in the right direction, at least. Um, it's less horrible, but it still has like point one still has pretty severe like you know beta quality bugs, and and what's driving me nuts is you know, I mean at least you know thirteen point one broke my app and lots of other people's apps as well, and in a way that all of our customers uh, are seeing and blaming us for, uh, under, understandably. Thirteen point two seems to be okay on my apps but is now breaking the phone <laughs> so i don't know what's right. worse <laughs> i mean if you never use voice prompts and never adjust the volume uh, and never need never need your phone to speak you anything you know maybe 13.2 is okay for you but beta 3 came out today so i'll see if it's any different good luck mm-hmm. all right anything else you want to talk about marco oh yeah um there's one one other thing um so i wanted to give a quick promo for an app called optimus player and the reason why, uh, it's, it's a really good app, and the reason I'm promoting it is because the author of this app did me a massive favor, and I, I wanted to try to pay him back in whatever way I could. Um, he really helped me out a lot with my AirPlay 2 code. And my AirPlay 2 feature is still not shippable. I, I still have a long way to go, but I, I had a huge roadblock, and he basically helped me past it. So I wanted to give his app a quick promo. It's called Optimus Player, and it's kind of like, it, it looks kind of like QuickTime Player, but it supports like all the different formats that you would normally have to use something like VLC for. And it's way nicer than VLC, like way nicer. Uh, it ha- and it's very Mac-like. It has AirPlay 2, which is why he, you know, why he was able to help me. He, he used it. Uh, it has AirPlay 2. And on the Mac, there's almost nothing that has AirPlay 2. So that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, it has you know, proper um, color reproduction on the Mac, which VLC often doesn't. Um, and it's just very Mac-like, very Apple-like. So it's a great app. It's five bucks optimusplayer.com and i thank the author very much for his help in my airplay 2 journey i'm always looking for apps like this i'm gonna get this right now yeah i mean five bucks like you can't go wrong i also was pleased to see that it's just well i shouldn't say just as though it's not a big deal it is uh sitting on top of ffmpeg and as someone who knows ffmpeg more than most i can tell you that you don't just do anything with ffmpeg (laughs) so uh so yeah this is this this looks really good i haven't tried it yet but i I was glancing at the website when i saw this in the show notes this looks really 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 good yeah like every use of ffmpeg requires a google search first uh (laughs) at least one um and and also like i honestly like i have never had great experiences with vlc on the mac like i I recognize vlc's importance in in like you know the open source community and and the windows world uh but on the mac it's it's always been pretty rough and uh 
And so to have to have something that can play like all those random formats that you might find that QuickTime player can't, uh, to have something that can play that that's better than VLC is, is pretty valuable to me. Excellent. All right, let's do some topics. Uh, is it time for us to talk about Apple in China? I mean, I feel like it probably. I mean, is, isn't it? If, if there's ever a time, like <laughs> this is a pretty big news week for it. Yeah. Oh God! How do? Uh, I know I'm chief summarizer in chief, but I don't even know how to summarize this. There's so many moving parts. So uh, there seem to be like th- two or three different stories all happening simultaneously. And let me just start down this path and either one of you two, please feel free to interrupt me and save me. So at around the same time, there was some sort of kerfuffle with regard to Blizzard and like video game competitions, wherein I think the winner of some event said something that was in, in favor of Hong Kong and the protests oh, that are happening. That's it. There. We're banned in China. Yep. That's it. We're done. Um, sorry guys. So they, they said something in favor of, of Hong Kong and, and blizzard, I guess like cut them off, like rescinded this, this individual or this team's winnings and like fired some people or something like that. Uh, and there was all sorts of blowback because of it, which seems to me to be justified. Uh, additionally, there was a general manager, if I'm not mistaken for the NBA, I think the Houston Rockets, if I'm not mistaken, that said that issued a tweet that was pro Hong Kong and quickly rescinded it when it was quickly apparent that that really upset China. And guess what? China's a big market for both video games and basketball, actually. And then additionally, how did Apple get involved in this? What was the genesis on Apple? Oh, the the app. The HK Map Hong Live. Kong. Thank yeah. you. So there was a, or there is an app that somebody had tried to put on, on the App Store, which I, depending on who you believe and who you talk to, I guess the idea was to either try to help people not get accosted by the police or perhaps if you listen to certain people, it would help people accost the police. So there's a lot of different he said, she said's going on here. But all at about the same time, these three seemingly unrelated uh, uh, groups have run afoul of the people of the, the higher ups in China. And China seemed to be started, well, maybe not starting actually, but seemed to be more publicly than ever flexing their muscles and saying, we don't like this and it has to stop. And I guess before we move on as to why this is important or not, is that a reasonable kind of quick summary about all this? There's, there's, there's been tons of other incidents as well, but those three are the, the ones that are the top of mind for us in this in the week that we're recording this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to call out, our, he is a friend of ours, but uh, Ben Thompson's Stratechery uh, was Tuesday, October 8th, has a really, really good kind of walkthrough and summary uh, about what's going on there and why it's important. And it is it is one of his uh, like weekly free articles. I cannot say enough good things about this article and really uh, Stratechery in general, but I, I strongly encourage you to read that article because it is tremendous and it's a very, very good and in-depth, but not terribly long summary of what's going on. Um, but I guess where this becomes relevant, particularly for ATP, is Apple's put themselves in a real crummy position because not only is China an incredibly important market for Apple in terms of sales, but pretty much all of their hardware, with the possible exception of your two new computers for the two of you, uh, is made in China. And all of these iPhones are made in China. All these iPads are made in China. And that has left Apple very, very exposed. And 
for a company that prides itself on being more than a traditional company, a, a company that values the environment, that values LGBTQ uh, people and their rights, that values things that just seem like the right thing. It it also seems like the same company, Apple, is also doing a real good job of bending over backwards to make China happy. And in and of itself, I think that's fine. Just hear me out for a second. Like in and of itself, that is their prerogative is a better way of phrasing it. Like if they want to bend over for Apple, then okay. But that seems incongruous with, oh, we're we're very forward thinking and we care about the environment. We care about doing what's right. Screw you, FBI. You can't have our encryption keys. There will be no back doors. Yay. We're the best. Oh, by the way, if China says anything about anything, we're going to do it because we need to immediately. And that leaves a really gross taste in my mouth. And I don't, I'm torn because you know, a lot of people on Twitter have said to me about various things over the last six months, you know, how can you support whatever? They're terrible. How could you support those people? And what's been made clear to me over the last six months to year to two years to whatever is that pretty much any company, even one that most people seem to agree with and, and respect, like Apple, pretty much any company you can look at and say, oh, one time they did this deplorable thing that, and we should never support them again. Or this individual on their board is really, really gross and we should never support them again. And I am absolutely coming from a position of privilege here. I recognize that 1000%. But if I didn't do business with any of these companies that have Achilles heels and gotchas and so on and so forth... I would have to be in a van down by the river because I would have I would I wouldn't be able to do business with anyone. So I don't know. I've really, as as we say to Declan or Declan sometimes says to us, I have mixed up feelings, and I don't I don't I don't know what I think other than I don't like Apple in saying out of one side of their mouths, you know, we're the best, we're so forward thinking, we care, we care, we care. And then on the other side of their mouths saying, yes, China, whatever you need, whatever you need. Yes, of course, absolutely, whatever you need. So what do we do? Well, before we dive into the Apple side of things, which I think is is interesting and is a little bit more tractable, I think I want to start by big picturing this. Like, so Apple has a China problem. Lots of articles have been written with that, almost that exact headline. Uh, but the bigger picture is the world has a China problem. China is a problem for the world. Uh, <laughs> it is a huge country with a very large population that has been growing in economic power for a long time. And it's also an authoritarian state. And those things combine to make a problem for everybody. Uh, why is that a problem? Well, in the increasingly global economy, having lots of people with an increasing amount of money to spend on things makes them an important market for you to sell your products into. Also, part of Chinese economic engine is their manufacturing ability, which Apple takes advantage of, and many other people take advantage of as well, which makes them an attractive place for companies to have things made. As the rest of the world becomes increasingly economically entangled with China, there are pluses and minuses. The pluses are in theory, we are all slightly less likely to nuke each other uh, because we're all <laughs> paying each other's money and China doesn't want to give up uh, selling things to us and we don't want to give up selling things to China and China doesn't want to give up the manufacturing contracts and we don't want to give up building things there. And so there is some incentive to not blow each other up. But on the other, other hand, there's still an authoritarian state that does terrible things 
and we both have limited leverage to, you know, affect each other's behavior, we would like China to be less evil. China would like us to let them be evil. <laughs> and so that we're kind of at an impasse. And this is so much bigger than Apple. It is literally a problem for the whole world. Like this, this has to come to a head eventually. The, the, the prevailing theory when I was a kid was that, oh, as China becomes more economically successful and as we sort of export capitalism to them, like it's inevitable they will become modernized and less authoritarian and so on and so forth. But practically speaking, China has basically used their economic growth and increasing technological savvy to become a more efficient authoritarian state using all the technology and money available to them. By the way, so have we. Yeah, true. To more efficiently uh, oppress their people. And it seems like, I mean, it's hard to tell. I'm not a historian by any stretch, but it seems like in general, authoritarian regimes rarely fade away peacefully, (laughs) let's say. Uh, But, you know, violent rebellion in China uh, if it was successful, would be an incredibly tumultuous event. There have been, you know, there have been violent rebellions and continue to be small violent rebellions all quashed by the giant that is China. And so I can, from the perspective of the world, this is a problem if you don't want a gigantic, powerful, authoritarian state to exist. But on the other side, and this we'll get into when we start talking about Apple, complete isolation of China is probably more dangerous in the long run because like they'll sort of fester and they already have nukes and it's like, you know, they have a lot of people and a huge army and like, this is, this is the tension that, you know, the Western world and the entire world, in fact, has has struggled with total isolation and non-engagement. Like I feel like the ship has sailed on that. But on the other hand, if you, if you get too entangled with them, they do have some sway over you. And we see it in every form of business of every country that does any business with China, whether it's manufacturing there or selling things into it. There are interests there that motivate both parties to more or less make nice with each other, which sounds good. Oh, great. Everyone's making nice. I'm not going to get nuked. But when you make nice with an authoritarian state, they like what tends to happen if you, if you sort of combine like if you, if you combine like two colors, you get something that's in the middle and if your one color is what you think of as better or good and you combine it with something that is worse, the combination will be worse than where you started necessarily, right? It's like we hope that we would, you know, through through the free world's interaction with China, they would become more free. And I'm not sure if they have become more free, but it's one thing is for sure their export authoritarianism has affected the rest of the world in mostly small ways, but in actual real ways. So I just, I I wanted to give that framing in that Apple, that's what the podcast is about, so on and so forth. But no matter what Apple does, the entire world has a problem of some degree. Is it a huge problem? Is it going to end the world? Or is it a small problem? Could it become a big problem? But it is a problem. And it is not a new problem. It has been there for a long time. And the world has not come up with a way to deal with it. And so this is, I feel like, I don't know if it's an increased awareness or just a flare-up in our little world of exactly what a problem it is to have 1.3 billion people under authoritarian rule with huge economic and financial power. Yeah, and like, I don't, I mean, I'm, you know, your typical ignorant American. I don't know anything about any of this. I don't know anything about China. I don't know anything about all the various political struggles with various groups and 
countries and districts. You know, I, I don't know anything about it. I it is shameful how little I know about China and the various politics around it. So I apologize for anything that I'm trying to say here because I'm probably doing a terrible job of it. But in business as in politics, the bigger you get, the more like kind of bitter pills you have to swallow that are just part of the nature of the game. To be running a you know massive multinational corporation, it becomes really hard for you to just tell the biggest market on earth sorry we don't want to do business with you because it's you know we don't like we don't like what you do like that's that's really hard for like officers of a public company to do without getting fired or sued by their shareholders or whatever else like like i'm lucky you know in my business like china blocked overcast years ago and i don't care i didn't notice i didn't have that many customers there and i'm one guy nobody can fire me so like i didn't care so i you know it doesn't affect me at all i can i can make the decision to say I won't play ball with them. Apple can't, you know, for, from from the two different points of view, you know, as, as I mentioned, like from the manufacturing and from the, you know, selling into the market, Apple can't do that. They can't just say, like, it's like Tim Cook can't just say, like, you know what, we're not going to play ball with you and we're going to let you ban our products and then we won't be able to make them anymore or sell them there. They could do that. I just want to, I want to I reframe this to say that, like, I'm not presupposing, which is what part of the preamble was about. I'm not presupposing that saying to China "f you" is actually the correct long-term move. We always frame it as like, "Oh, if Apple was, you know, was free as Marco, they would do the right thing and, and tell China to go screw itself, right?" But is that the right thing from one perspective, from like the micro level? Yeah, of course. The you know, authoritarian government's telling you to like censor things, and you shouldn't listen to them. You should say "screw you." And if they ban your products, then tough luck. It seems like the right thing to do. But big picture wise, if everybody did that and you isolate China, it makes them more dangerous and it makes conflict more likely because you are less economically entangled. So that's why I feel like it's a quandary. Like I'm not I'm not willing to say that like on, on the big picture wise, every company in the world should just say, screw you, China, because that leads to geopolitical instability with a gigantic, you know, powerful country. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't make as someone who lived through the Cold War. That doesn't make me feel particularly comfortable. If that strategy was going to work, it, we, the ship has sailed on that. So I feel like continued engagement with China is not necessarily the wrong thing. And that's why I'm wary about any framing that says Apple should do the right thing, but can't because of reasons X. The reasons X are, are totally real, but I'm almost not entirely convinced that just like so the sort of teenage rebellion, screw you, China, I do what I want, is actually the right thing to do in all circumstances. Realistically speaking, what can slash should Apple do here? And I don't think they should totally pull out of China. I don't think they can, first of all. And I don't think they should. There's lots of arguments that, you know, like one of the arguments is that, that you know, people in China should have access to relatively secure and good phones, even though, yes, all Chinese iCloud data is stored in Chinese government-run uh, places uh, so you know th- there's certainly reduced freedom and security for uh, iCloud users in China than there was anywhere else but it's better than the alternatives in theory like that's the sort of the, the, the mixing of the colors if you're going to mix you know Apple with China and come up with something that is less authoritarian than China even if only by a tiny bit that's I mean that's the argument Apple has made that like it's better for us to it's better for everybody if we are there even if we are not as secure as we are in the U.S., at least we're more secure than the totally state-owned and run, like, totally infiltrated manufacturers where nothing is secret. 
Exactly. And and that's and I don't you know, that's a tough argument for me to take honestly. I don't I don't love that argument, but I understand it. And so okay. And and it's convenient because you can make that argument of this is why we have to be in this huge market. See, we're making China you know, you're making China better, but really you're making a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think Apple has to play ball with China to a large degree. That is that is just like one of the bitter pills, possibly the biggest bitter pill that Apple has to swallow as a business. Like I truly believe that Apple's leaders are not bad people. They don't want to do bad things. They actually want to be overall social good while making ass loads of money constantly. Like they, but they they want to do they want to be overall a social good. But China is a big area where they they have to just kind of like quietly do what China wants much of the time because Apple has a just ton of dependency on China, and so. I think in the same way that like, you know, the Tim Cook doctrine has always been like to own and control the primary technologies that that we need or whatever. I think they have broken that principle with the degree of dependence they currently have on China. The manufacturing angle, I think, is is the biggest one. Like they they obviously, you know, to lose the sales of their products into China would be massive. It's a huge portion of their market. It's a huge portion of the world's market. It's sl- slated to become an even bigger portion of the world's like middle class. And so that would be a huge problem to lose sales into China. But Apple sells enough phones in the rest of the world, they'd be fine. Like it would be tumultuous in their earnings and in their stock and everything else. You know, the the leaders might get fired by by the board or by the shareholders or whatever. Like, you know, things would be bad for most of Apple's customers. It wouldn't be a problem. Like, it, it would be overall like not a like company ending event if they couldn't sell their products in China anymore. But if they suddenly couldn't make their products in China anymore, that is a much bigger problem for them. And this and it's they make so many products at such incredible tolerances and specifications and qualities and most importantly volumes that the chinese supply chain and manufacturing capacity and talent and just the entire manufacturing infrastructure there apple currently can't do without that they have a couple of factories uh, in different places around the world like like they have some manufacturing capacity outside of china but it's nowhere near enough that they could absorb the loss of China without huge disruption and massive problems. And that, to me, I think, like, that is a direct violation, a direct uh, risk exposure on that Tim Cook doctrine of, like, trying to own your primary technologies. Like, in as much as a company can be independent from risks of governments interfering, you know, that's obvious, That's always a big challenge for companies. And obviously, try, uh, Apple's always going to be at risk of its own home country's government interfering with it to expose yourself to a massive amount of risk of another authoritarian country with huge power over you it seems like it's it's an it's an improperly taken risk by apple and that's why i think like i'm not saying they should pull out of the chinese market i am saying they need to significantly diversify their manufacturing and i know it's hard I know there's not nearly the infrastructure in other places in certain ways that China has. I know that. But Apple's really big. They have a lot of money. They ship a lot of products. They, ha- they have a lot of you know, factories that they can, like, Apple could significantly help jumpstart this. And so to whatever degree Apple can build up manufacturing capacity elsewhere, this should be, if it hasn't already been, this should be a wake-up call. 
that they are exposed to way too much risk with the amount that they depend on China right now. And so the, the, the easiest way out of that, and I use the term easiest here loosely because these are all very hard, very complicated problems that we don't understand, but the, the least horrible and, and least risky and least expensive way out of this is probably going to be to significantly build up manufacturing capacity elsewhere. As much as I hate to say it, some degree of conservatism was right in the sense that if you build it in our country, that does reduce your risk in certain in certain ways. But I don't know enough about it to say whether that's even possible. But certainly, like, if anybody can do it, a company that has a massive amount of cash, that produces a massive amount of products and has huge manufacturing expertise in-house, Apple can figure out how to diversify its manufacturing. And Apple has the, the clout and the resources to move markets in major ways here like apple actually can create manufacturing infrastructure that can rival china's in some way like i know it's a huge long-term project i know it's not going to be you know fast or easy or cheap but if I, I, i to me i see this as an existential threat for apple if they don't do this like they have to do this because if if stuff goes bad with china and apple all of a sudden can't make their products there anymore they not only won't be able to sell to China, they won't be able to sell to anybody. That is a huge risk, and the company needs to diversify to mitigate that. So Apple manufacturing China is a good example of engagement with China. Like when You can imagine when this strategy was being formulated. It's not, you know, Apple's manufactured stuff in China for ages, but it, like in the beginning, it seems like a way that we can take advantage of an emerging uh cluster of manufacturing ability that is obviously less expensive than doing it at home and less expensive than doing you know it's it's inexpensive and highly skilled and there's like there's a synergy there where they want to build up manufacturing we want to have things manufactured they're very willing to do what we want and for you know for the amount of money we want to give them and it's a symbiotic relationship apple not single-handedly but to a large degree the story of apple manufacturing elsewhere has been that apple puts in a lot of money up front. You know all the stories back when, you know, the unibodies were coming out that they would buy all the CNC machines in the world and have them, you know, <laughs> use them in all their factories and put the capital up front to build the factories. And like Apple, you know, it didn't make China's manufacturing capability, but Apple put a lot of money into it. So what what it has done in China is exactly what you were describing, which is put money in to make the kind of manufacturing capacity you want that didn't previously exist to the degree and the size that you needed it to. The thing is, Apple has undertaken that project for what, a decade now, you know, or maybe almost two. Like they've they've put a lot of time and energy into building up that capacity, and they have been diversifying. Like, but I think the the main thing that makes me confident that they can do it is they can do what they did in China over a course of another decade, right? Lots of places in the world do not have the manufacturing skills and and the the worker base and all the supply chain and everything that China has. You will have to pay part of the money to make that come into being. The good news is that lots of other countries would love to have a huge infusion of U.S. cash to build up manufacturing capacity, (laughs) you know, to build up high-tech manufacturing capacity that they can therefore then use to, you know, sell to other people. So there's, there's no shortage of other countries they would love for you to build your stuff there and give you all those billions of dollars. But it does take a really long time. 
And you're not going to replace or catch up with China in a one or two year plan. It's going to be over the course of the next decade or so. And I think that type of response, like while it feels good to say, screw you, China, we're putting the Hong Kong mapping app back in the store, you know, go Apple, we're doing the quote unquote right thing all the time. Uh, We just give, you know, the middle finger to the authoritarian state. A less, hugely less satisfying, but perhaps in the long term, more effective response is to accelerate plans to do, you know, to moon your manufacturing out of China. Accelerate means we're going to do it in the next decade instead of two decades from now, right? That is a response. That is sort of an economic response that is like, you know, it's a thing. China will know that Apple's doing it. China will understand that, you know, we got this big of a contract last year to do this thing, and now we get less of a contract. Like, it, you are remaining engaged with the authoritarian state, but you are tapering off your investment and, you know, and giving it to other countries, maybe even other neighboring countries. China sees that. Like, this is the this is the power of the incentives that we have. We don't have, our power is not, we can say, screw you, China, at any point. We don't have that power. Apple doesn't have that power. The world doesn't have that power. But Apple and the world does have the power to say, maybe less less of that, less of China, less of doing stuff in there. Like, that's our power. And if they want to say, hey, Apple, come back to China, then you can have a discussion. That's like, this is the sort of, sort of a economic form of diplomacy, like actual geopolitical diplomacy, you have blown people up in wars and territory or whatever is a different thing. Today, most of that happens over the course of like, who's going to get what contract to build what thing for what company. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a much more crass <laughs> form of negotiation, but that's, that's the way things are done. That is the power Apple and the world has. And it is a more boring and much less satisfying and much more slow motion form of power. In the meantime, Apple, you know, China's power over the rest of the world is much more immediate, but you know, not as powerful as like, cause like, you know, this has been discussed in this the week with discussing things with China for, for most of our life or for, you know, for at least half of our lives, China has had a huge influence over uh, the movies that get made in Hollywood because Hollywood wants to sell movies in China and China doesn't want movies that make that make China look bad. So it was just been a thing for years and years. It used to be just a comical thing. Like, oh, you know, in this movie, they did this thing and uh, because it plays better in China or, or they took this out because China doesn't like that. or And it seems kind of funny and weird, but eventually you're like, this is not a great situation. Why is the media we're making in Hollywood being bent to the will of an authoritarian state on the other side of the world? I was like, well, so we can sell the movie over there because international box office is huge and they have a lot of people who go to the movies. And that's the answer, but it's not a great answer. But like that, that's an immediate thing. Like that China makes it known, hey, we're not going to show your movie if you say bad things about us or do things that we don't like. And that means like immediately the people who are making a giant blockbuster movie for $200 million in Hollywood are like, you know, they, you know, China says jump, they say how high. It's small stakes, but it happens immediately. Whereas Apple slowly transitioning its manufacturing to places other than China over the next decade or two, hugely less satisfying, way slower, not as dramatic. And in the meantime, Apple needs to explain why it's doing what China wants, uh, try to come up with reasoning for its moves that fits in with the ethos that Casey was describing. Hey, Apple, I thought you were the think different, do good things for the world type thing. It's it's difficult to explain. And and 
not only difficult to explain, we're not, it's not entirely sure that it's right. I was saying that I wasn't willing to say that total lack of engagement with China was the right answer. Uh, I'm not sure it's the right answer or the wrong answer. Like, they, Apple could laboriously explain what I just described, and it could end up being the wrong answer. Like, no one, no one knows exactly how things are going to go. But, you know, the history of the world has showed us anything. It's not easy to predict how these things are going to go down. Often they hinge on very small, stupid things, including, like, apps getting rejected and whatever is happening with Hong Kong and everything. So it, there there are no easy solutions here, but I I agree with Marco. I think I said as much when we first discussed this in Slack a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure neither of us are uh, out ahead of Apple on this. Apple surely has known for a long time and certainly knows now that they should be finding alternatives. That, you know, they, they made the original trash can in Texas or whatever. Obviously, that's a silly, you know, low volume thing. But they made like, all eight of them there. Yeah, but like the fact that things like that exist. I mean, part of it's part of the U.S. political system and all that garbage, right? But and they have, you know, they're increasing manufacturing in India. Like, there's Apple is doing this already. It just because it is unsatisfying and slow. You might think, oh, Apple needs to start right now and get out of China. I think they're already doing that as fast as they can. It's just that as fast as they can is really slow. And so, and, and, you know, and that's just a guess. And in the meantime, Apple has to put out press releases saying we're banning the app that shows you where police are because reasons, and it's not satisfying and it doesn't feel good, but you know, I, I, there's, there's no easy solutions here. Like I wish I could tell you exactly what everybody should do. All I can tell you is what probably Apple's best bet is and probably what essentially what they already are doing. And then we just have to like, cross our fingers and hope tanks don't roll into Hong Kong and the whole world blows up. Uh, and in the meantime, we got to deal with uh, authoritarian exports from China infiltrating our country to mix in with, as Marco pointed out, our own homegrown brand of authoritarianism. And it's, we're back to Breaking Bad again, aren't we? This is not a good episode. <laughs> no, that's true. So this geopolitical me, climate isn't making me happy, Casey. No, tell me about it. Uh, let me ask both of you, and, and I'll start with John. If you could snap your fingers and you could either make Apple completely unreliant, so no longer reliant on Intel at all, or you could snap your fingers and make Apple not reliant on China at all. And let's assume that it's magic, and I know you love these, John. It's magic and nothing else changes. You know, it, 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 there's no uh, penalties that you can see. It's just you snap your fingers, neither Intel is not a problem or China's not a problem. Which do you do? China, easy. If Apple's barely relying on Intel as it is, and you know, within <laughs> a few years, they'll be off of Intel entirely anyway. China, China is so much a harder problem. Apple's basically already off of Intel for practically inside apple where things are five years ahead of where they are outside apple intel is gone that's a bold statement yeah I, i'm a john on that one you really think intel's gone in five years from now apple yeah i think so i really hope so i mean our freaking phone is faster than all their macs come on <laughs> I, and, and maybe not maybe not totally 100 percent gone but like i think very few of their products will be left running intel processors yeah, in five years. i mean like they they've done most of like we're talking about how hard it is to do the china thing they've done most of the hard work for the for getting off of intel like they have they they where are they going to get their chips from they're going to make them themselves they own and control them are those chips good yes they're really good all that's left is the okay and now we're transitioning and here's the transition strategy which apple has done before like the hard part was if you had mentioned this you know before apple had the iPhone. They had Intel Macs. And it's like, they want to get off Intel. It's like, who, who are they going to use the, for their chips and their Macs? AMD? 
And you're like, well, what if Apple makes their own chips? And everyone would laugh and laugh. But we're way past that now. That problem is is mostly solved. Whereas the China thing, you would really need a magic genie finger snapping thing because they Apple, I feel like, is just in the early stages of trying to deal with that. Um, and in the meantime, I'm I'm you know I'm being optimistic and saying, of course, Apple wants to do the right thing. There are huge powers, as Marco pointed out, on the other side of this, saying, "What are you doing? Don't get out of China. Just make the authoritarian state happy because they manufacture things really well and cheaply, and we want you to keep doing that because we're you know plutocrats who all we care about is our investment, and we have billions of dollars in Apple stock. So don't do that. Like that exists. That's a real thing. As much as any individual leader at Apple may want to do the right thing." As you know, as Marco said, like you know, the board could ditch them and replace them with someone who's uh, more likely to uh, bend to China's will. Like those forces exist within our country uh, and have to be dealt with, just like anything else. Also, I mean, first of all, so a couple other quick, couple other quick follow up items here. So, number one, uh, I think we uh, we are closer to dropping Intel than we might think because look at how much stuff got removed from Catalina. Look at how much legacy cruft sure. that the operating system has been dropping over the last couple of years, and especially this year. If you were doing a architecture transition pretty soon, you would want as little legacy stuff around as possible, and you would want all the apps that you'd have to support being built using modern tools and things like that. Uh, so that's you know step number one. Um, item number two here is... Um, I think one of the exacerbating factors in the most recent dust-up with Apple in China with the HTML Live app is that we don't have sideloading in the App Store. We don't, or, or in iOS devices, rather. Like Part of that app's removal, and again, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know anything about the politics behind any of this. I should, but I don't, and I'm sorry. Um, but part of the problem with the app's removal is that you have no other alternative. Now, you do have their web app, and apparently I've been told their web app is pretty good, and you know, so it's, it's kind of moot that Apple removed the app from the App Store because the web app can still be used for the same purpose, apparently I've been told. Uh, but the fact is, we don't have sideloading on iOS devices, and I, I don't know that Apple will ever do that. I, I would consider it fairly unlikely, but that is like one kind of relief valve that if they needed one, they could pull it. Where they could just start allowing sideloaded software with certain you know restrictions, maybe maybe it's notarization, uh, who knows what, but certain restrictions so that they could still like you know do like an expert kind of blacklist thing and, and blacklist obvious malware, but that they would not be running everything through the app store and therefore not even be putting themselves in the position of having to block apps and you know for like certain government requests. And sure, then you know the Chinese government could then just go to the web host that was hosting the app and make them block it. Yes, that is true, but at least it wouldn't be on Apple. And so that is one relief valve again. I don't, I don't think they're ever going to pull it, but they have, by putting themselves in the position of being the gatekeeper to all software on iOS, they then also put themselves directly in the position of having to deal with stuff like this. And if they weren't the only gatekeeper for all software they would remove themselves from the business of having to deal with a lot of this crap. Apple could, uh, I mean, Apple has, I imagine, been of two minds internally about this for a long time, and, but it's like a struggle. It's like, well, the, the advantages are just too much. We can't allow sideloading. Uh, they could be helped out, quote-unquote helped out, by, for example, the U.S. government deciding that with this, you know, these ongoing antitrust things, that they have to allow sideloading. And then that, that 
kind of solves one of Apple's difficult problems in that we never knew whether we could do it before. Keeping everything closed was like a problem and it put us in all sorts of binds. And now it's like, well, we don't have a choice. The U.S. government says you can't do that, so we won't. And we get the benefits that you just described without ever having to make that difficult decision, which may or may not be the right. Like, basically, if you're allowed to not have side loading, it may actually be the right decision for Apple to not have side loading. But if you're not allowed to forbid side loading, Apple's problem is solved. It's like, well, we have no choice. Right. And again, you know, it's an American company subject to American laws. You can do different things. Different, but I feel like that would be somewhat of a relief for Apple, like taking that choice away. I'm sure they don't see it that way. I'm sure they don't see increased government regulation as the answer to any of their problems. But from the outside uh, and in general in American corporate history, when companies get too large and powerful, government regulation is often the only way to make things better because you can't rely on the companies to to regulate themselves like too many things are aligned against them being good at regulating themselves that's the role of government uh whether we're at that point with apple well i can have a whole other discussion when these antitrust stuffs roll on and whether or not we'd agree with any individual case that's going up against them but i feel like part of part of the and not just apple all, all the large tech companies they're not going to solve these problems themselves they are producing more and more difficult problems for themselves because their path to power has led them in that direction and they're not going to turn from it unless some other influence pushes them in that direction and maybe dealing with china is not enough but the u.s government saying you can't do that anymore or like you can either we can either break you up or you can allow side loading apple would be like side loading sure great we'll do it like there's all sorts of scenarios in which uh, Apple could be convinced that it is suddenly in their best interest to make a deal with the U.S. government to allow sideloading. We are sponsored this week by Casper. You spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Casper's experts work tirelessly to make quality sleep products designed by humans for humans. So they start out with their amazing mattresses. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right amounts of both sink and bounce and a breathable design to help you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, the original Casper mattress is really becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. And now they have three other mattresses, the Wave, the Essential, and the Hybrid. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. That's the one I have, and I gotta say, it's really nice. The Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. And the Hybrid combines the pressure relief of the award-winning foam with durable yet gentle springs. And Casper has a wide array of other products like pillows and sheets for your sleep experience. All of these products are designed, developed, and assembled right here in the U.S. and brought to you by affordable pricing because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. If you aren't completely satisfied, they offer hassle-free returns and getting it's no problem because they deliver it to you in a small box. Free shipping and free returns in the U.S. and Canada. And you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. So get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash ATP 2019 and using code ATP 2019 at checkout. That's casper.com slash ATP 2019 with special code ATP 2019. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to Casper for sponsoring our show. 
All right, let's do some Ask ATP. Chris Wright wants to know, will progress bars or time remaining estimations ever become broadly more accurate, linear, and consistent with smooth animation from 0 to 100%? And if not, would you care to explain some of the computational reasons why? <laughs> oh, this is a good one. Um, so, I mean, the computational... So, the answer is no. The you know, time remaining bars and progress bars will never be incredibly accurate on a broad scale. And the main reasons why come down to unpredictable tasks and lazy programmers. And neither of those are ever going away. <laughs> so, Truth. unpredictable tasks would include things like if you have to fetch something over a network... So, for instance, like the, the like a progress bar for loading a web page, you have no idea how long it's going to take. Not to mention the fact that every every new piece of data you fetch, like on a, in, in a web page, like if you're loading a web page progressively, every new thing that you load might then add something that needs to be loaded to it. So, like you might all of a sudden read in, oh, here's a here's a script tag. Let me load the script, and then that script tag adds other scripts, and so or adds images that need to be loaded or something. And so, like you 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 don't know until you finish loading something, whether you have more stuff to load. And you don't know how long it will take to load each thing because you're pulling it over the network. So like, there's that whole category of things that, like, this is never going to be perfectly predictable. You, you, can, you can make estimates, but it's never going to be great. And then there's lazy programmers. Like, that's, the reality is, like, there's not a lot of both skill to do things incredibly right at a level like that for like a progress meter to be accurate. And there's also not a lot of economic incentive for project managers and bosses to allocate resources to engineering time to making the progress bars better. You know, the reality is that all this stuff is dictated by time and economics and everything and nobody's business is depending on those progress bars being accurate. And so the engineers will always have things that their bosses are telling them that they should do instead of working on that. And many of the engineers who would do things that would give a progress bar its, uh, its percentage to show also aren't that good at estimating things at, and might, you know, might, be, might not have the skill to do it right in the first place. So the combination of you know, lazy or lazy programmers or you know slash programmers who aren't given the power to to do it right uh and the unpredictability of many of these tasks uh you know that's it's never going to be great I, I think progress bars as we see them now not only are about as good as we're ever likely to see them again but are actually worse than they used to be in some ways because i feel like now we have even more tasks than ever that do network requests or that do you know more complex things and we and the era of mobile has introduced the uh, the era of the spinner, and the spinner is not a progress indicator; it is simply a activity indicator. It doesn't tell you how complete something is; it just tells you something's happening. And most people are fine with that. And as long as the spinner keeps animating, most people don't think it's a problem. Like most customers are fine with that. And so we actually now have fewer operations that show progress bars. Most of them will just show a spinner until they're done. And no matter how long it takes. I think there's two more things. First, I would give much heavier weight to unpredictability because I feel like that is the real reason why you're never going to be satisfied. But there's two other reasons. One is user experience. Uh, and, and Chris said it in the thing, like the, the expectation of a progress bar, traditional progress bar, is that it's, you know, like this linear, consistent, smooth animation, right? 
one one thing that violates that is if suddenly your progress bar goes backwards. You're like, what what do you mean backwards? <laughs> it, I was I was ten percent and now I'm five percent. This thing is broken. But as Marco pointed out, you don't know how far you are. You could be doing a thing and suddenly you have much more work than you thought. If you were to proportionally scale the new amount of work that you know you have to do, you thought you had to do ten things, now you have to do a hundred. Suddenly, the progress bar goes backwards. People hate that. The second thing is Im- impatient <laughs> users. People want things to be done fast. The more work you do to get an accurate progress bar, the longer your task takes. There's no better example than this than doing any file operation in the Finder, where it tries really hard to count up all the things that it's going to have to do to give a better, more accurate progress bar. And you're like, oh, my God, Finder, just start doing the thing. <laughs> I don't care how many things there are. Look, let me tell you, it's millions. There are millions of things. Whereas if you go to the command line and do rm minus rf directory, rm does not traverse the directory tree to find out how many things it has to delete to give you a progress bar. It just starts deleting crap, which is why the Finder, one of the many reasons the Finder takes a really long time to do operations on a large amount of things, it's spending time to try to give you the best progress bar you can get. People don't want that. They, don't, they want the thing to take the smallest amount of time. They also want a progress bar, but as Marco pointed out, if you give them a spinner and do the task twice as fast, it's way better than spending half your time figuring out all the work you're going to have to do, like pre-flighting it all to get an accurate progress bar and then marching it through. That's not worthwhile. Um, and the only other thing, someone in the chat reminded me of the original Aqua progress bars, which I thought were a fairly, like many things in Aqua, they were a fairly ingenious uh, innovation. Uh, people might not remember these because things are no longer candy and lickable, but they were a typical progress bar, like a horizontal bar that fills. It would fill with this blue candy-colored-looking cylinder thing. But inside the blue candy-colored cylinder was like a wavy pattern that scrolled within the cylinder, which was a nice example of a single element, a progress bar going from left to right, that also incorporates the spinner thing, saying, is my computer frozen? Is this job still going? Because the progress bar isn't getting any bigger But because that texture is animating, it communicates to the user, don't worry, even though it's a lie most of the time, don't worry. The thing thing that you wanted to do, we're still trying to do it. It's just even though the progress bar isn't moving, the computer is still working. It's basically a user reassuring idle animation that lets them know that it's progressing and not frozen. Even though, again, that texture animation probably just happens automatically. For all you know, the job could be frozen. I thought that was a clever innovation. Our progress bars today on the Mac and elsewhere tend not to do that, but... Anyway, yeah, it's it's never going to be good because you can't predict the future and you don't want it to be good, trust me. Just try deleting a, a folder with a million <laughs> files in, in the Finder and you'll you'll wish for no progress bar or a progress bar that starts at zero and goes to 100 when it's done. Those really were beautiful progress bars, though. They were lickable. <laughs> Charles Clements writes, I'm curious as to your app of choice for composing the written word for things like blog post reference notes and other persistent writing. Also, do you tend to write using Markdown, regular plain text, rich text, or heaven forbid, Microsoft Word? Lastly, do you always use a heavy device for your writing, like a Mac laptop or desktop, or might you use an iPad on occasion? Uh, this is this and the next question are the continuation of John putting in Ask ATP things that I thought I could answer very quickly via email or tweet. So this I have already answered for Charles, but I will answer for everyone. Uh, when I write blog posts, I do it in Visual Studio Code, which probably strikes a lot of people as really weird, but um, it's a really good IDE for JavaScript, and my website is Node. And it also is very good at Markdown, and the blog posts are all written in Markdown. Generally speaking, if I'm doing anything except Apple Notes, I'm using Markdown, and I'm generally doing it in Visual Studio Code on my computer or a working copy, which is a really excellent Git client on the iPad. 
Uh, and that's usually where I'm doing that sort of thing. And my long-term storage, if not my website, is typically Apple Notes. Marco, how about you? Uh, anything that is code that is not an Xcode, so obviously I, I, I write my source code for my app in Xcode, but like code, other types of code, uh, blog posts, anything that I would have to write in Markdown, that I will almost always do in TextMate on a Mac, whether it's desktop or laptop. Um, although I don't do a lot of blog posting anymore, but you know, when I do, uh, it's, it's almost always TextMate. Um, when I'm writing other things, I'm usually using Apple Notes. And that I can and, and often do uh, edit on other platforms. I, I often will use my iPad to write out a big note um, or my phone, and it's nice to have that synced and everything. So, uh, and because and I don't, I never got into like the various um, that whole category of like Merlin Dropbox text editor apps, like, like that you would like you'd have like a folder in Dropbox and it would sync all your text documents, and you'd yep, be able to yep. edit them then on iOS and the Mac and everything. I never got into any of those that heavily. Like it, it never made it a part of my workflow, and so like I just never, I never had like a, a synced text base before until i got really into apple notes um so apple notes is like my my main home for most text and it's it's only when i have to get into either like you know server-side code stuff or writing markdown that i drop to textmate now um and yeah and then therefore that allows me to be more device agnostic and having everything synced everywhere is uh, is really useful john the answer is boring. It's actually kind of like Casey's. I use BBEdit for everything. Everything I've ever written on the web has been done in BBEdit. All my programming is done in BBEdit for the most part. Um, I don't like or use Markdown. I write in plain text or for the, when I'm making something that's going to be HTML, I actually write it in HTML. As horrifying as that is for modern people, that's what I do don't use word i think the last time i used word was like writing papers for school i didn't write them in vb edit because they wanted you know i had to print them a proportional font and have you know all that stuff um i will not write on an ios device if i could possibly help it because i don't have a keyboard for my ios device like i'll write on the ipad on screen keyboard you know emails and stuff like that but i would never i would never choose to write anything long form there and i would avoid writing anything long form if i could possibly help it the most, I think the most writing i've ever done on ipad was when I used to go to WWC and I would bring a Bluetooth keyboard with me. Back before iPads had fancy keyboards, I would just bring like an Apple desktop Bluetooth keyboard, and that's what I would type on. Um, but a laptop is a better solution for that. So <laughs> I don't recall ever having seen you done that. That that must have looked pretty funny. I think you were. I saw it for a couple of years. Yeah, like yeah. the ones with like they took the the double A batteries. You know those with like the tube Bluetooth. That's, yeah, that's yeah. What I no, had. I know what you're thinking of. Yeah. I just I don't recall having seen you do that. I'm sure I did, but I don't remember it. Uh, can you summarize before the internet yells at you and I'm one of them? Uh, why don't you like Markdown? Uh, I I don't I don't like uh, having to write. And then, like, transform. Like, I don't, I don't like the, the sort of transformation compilation step. Like, I, I, I would say I grew up writing HTML. I, I wrote HTML from almost the earliest time that anyone was writing HTML. I'm very comfortable writing HTML. I don't have to write it all manually. BBEdit has lots of tools and keyboard shortcuts to make it easier. I don't mind it. And it is exactly what I want it to be. It's not, like, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, uh, write in a weird, funny syntax that gets transformed into HTML. It's because I don't, I don't find, I find it more mentally taxing and more work than doing it the other way. Now, that and it's basically because, like, I'm not, I wouldn't be using Markdown for its intended purpose. Markdown's intended purpose is that you can write it in Markdown, and it's perfectly fine looking at it as is. Like, you don't have to transform it into something else. The idea is, you write it in Markdown, it's human consumable already, right? But that's, I don't, that's not a use case that I have. I don't have a use case where I want to write. 
quote unquote styled organized text that is consumable as is. Everything I'm writing is going to be viewed in a web browser, in which case I need it to be HTML or it's code or something like that. Um, yeah. So when I, when I did all my writing, I would write it in HTML, which I find perfectly natural. I would proofread it in HTML with BB Edit's live preview window. You can get a window right next to your text window that's showing you what it looks like rendered in the website template with all the styling that's going to, you know, it's it's not like I'm staring at Ahref and trying to parse out the stuff like that. I can see <laughs> it's, it's like a WYSIWYG editor, but you do all your editing in the other window. You know, it's, it's anyway, um, my, my workflow for BB Edit works with me and I don't have a place in it for Markdown. I mean, whatever works for you, man, that just strikes me as totally bananas. But you do you. you know, let people like things. Uh, Tom Hurton, it writes, uh, we are considering getting an iMac to be a family computer. We're not planning to use it for Plex or any other server, etc. Do we really need a UPS? I would use a decent search, search protector. Uh, in replying to this tweet, I basically said, it's under $100. Why the hell wouldn't you? And I think, if I recall correctly, Tom had said he didn't realize that they were that cheap. And, and I think that was kind of the end of the conversation. But I absolutely say, you know, it, it, you don't have to get a super fancy UPS. It doesn't have to last, or at least if you live in most modern areas where power doesn't fail that frequently. Um, if you live somewhere where you, you just need to be able to hold your hold your computer over for five to ten minutes, I don't know why you wouldn't. And plus, uh, most decent UPSs you can, like, hook up via USB to your computer, and, you know, if you install the appropriate software or what have you, it'll actually tell the computer, hey, I'm running out of battery power, you might want to shut yourself down, and then the computer or Synology, for example, hint, hint, will shut itself down when the UPS is running out of, uh, running out of battery power. Uh, Marco, how do you feel about this? Do you have a whole house generator in, in New York, or what are you doing in order to uh, keep your power supply uninterruptible? Uh, we don't have any kind of backup power or anything, uh, but but I do have UPSs on desktops, so that's that's kind of my rule. Like any kind of like any kind of desktop or you know important server infrastructure, I put a UPS on, not because it's super necessary, but just because it's really annoying if your computer just all of a sudden turns off while you're working on it and you have unsafe stuff and you lose your work. And uh, as you mentioned, UPSs are not very expensive, especially compared to the price of the computers that they are plugged into. Um, they also happen usually if, if you get a good one, uh, which is more than $100, but if you, if you get a good one, you can get some fancier power filtering and, and power protection circuitry than you might be able to get out of a uh, basic circ strip. Um, so you do have a little bit more protection there from risks, but I, I don't think it's honestly, I, I don't think it's the kind of risk that most people have. Um, so it's mostly just for convenience. Like with a laptop or an iOS device, like if you're, if you, if you're having like a big windstorm, like what's going through here right now, and the power goes out for a split second, like you know, you don't need the UPS to last fifty, you know, to last an hour, you know. But it might be nice if it lasts like two minutes, you know, because like most, I think most power outages in most places are not long, but you might have like a blip or a, a thirty seconds where it's out or something like that, right? So like, it's really nice to have some things that you don't, so you don't just lose your work. And because they're they're relatively inexpensive and last relatively a long time, eventually the batteries wear out. But like they last relatively a long time, um, then you know it's generally a good idea for desktops. Um, and I feel like we, most people don't even face this problem because most people are just using laptops and iOS devices. But you know, if you're using desktops, it's it's nice. And I also uh, I put all of our networking gear on it as well. So I mentioned earlier when I'm talking about my, my network upgrade, uh, I have all of the um, uh, the, the router, the switch, the FiOS modem, 
and all my wireless access points, all of them are on the UPS. Uh, are, are on a, a different UPS than my computer, obviously, but they're they're all like on a big one in the garage. My, the Synology, so that way, like if there is a power outage, as long as Verizon also keeps their service up optically, I still have an internet connection, which is nice. John, I just replaced the uh, battery in my Synology UPS. Yeah, the, the answer is get one for your desktop stuff. They're they're a little bit of a hassle in that they do have batteries, and you do need to replace them when they wear out. And eventually, the UPS surge protection stuff in it will also wear out. But they're so worth it. I mean, it, it, you, depending on how stable your power is, my power is very stable. Once every few years, we get a flicker, but a flicker will take out what you're doing. Um, and not to mention like sort of brownouts and undervolts like this. Electronic equipment tends to be finicky, uh, and even if it's something as simple as, you know, playing on your PlayStation uh, that's not hooked up to a UPS and the power dips just long enough for it to, you know, blip off or something, like, it's it, it ruins your day. Um, there's also the theory, I think Mark already pointed out, like, that you're conditioning the voltage. You can get a fancy one that tries to make your power cleaner, but honestly, the power supplies in your devices help with that as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's no brainer. They're, they're cheap. Get one. It is difficult if you're getting a big fancy computer or have lots of stuff hooked up to size it correctly, because if you do the math, it'll be like, I need to buy this super expensive UPS. That's true. But I've gotten by for many years with a massively undersized UPS that gives me just enough time to panic shut down. <laughs> <We're just> like, <laughs> it starts making this noise like, Oh my God, I got to shut down. I got to save. Like it's all you need is a couple seconds to save and and shut down. Um, and as for OS integration, macOS has integration at this point where you don't need to install any software. Most UPSs you get that have a USB connection, uh, you just hook it up and the Mac will understand that it's a UPS and you can configure it to shut itself down. And as case said, Synology do the same thing. Oh, That's I didn't, I didn't realize that. If I, if I lose power on my Mac Pro that's sitting on my desk right now, my UPS will scream bloody murder and my Mac will immediately shut down and I will have just enough time to shut down. <laughs> Because it is not bit, like my power supply in this thing. What is like four hundred and fifty watt or something? And my new Mac Pro. I'm gonna have to get a new UPS. By the way, like it's a thing. Like surge protectors also wear out over time as well. So a good rule of thumb is when you get a new computer, especially if you waited ten years, uh, get a new UPS, get a new surge strip. I've, I've actually gone through several UPSs. <laughs> they they don't last as long as my computer apparently. <laughs> Nothing lasts as long as your computer. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Get get a UPS. It's you know, it's worth it. Yeah. And and it is very important what you just said that like surge protectors don't protect forever. There's a thing in them that basically it gives itself up to, <laughs> to, to protect you. And then after that, you have no more protection. Uh, a good surge protector will actually stop the power going through it. If that thing ever wears out, I, I'm sorry, I don't know the details of what these things are called, but like, like the good ones will actually, you know, the, most of them will, will have like a light that's like, you, you currently have protection if this light is on, but you never look at it, right? So the good ones will actually cut off power if the protection ever fails to protect you. That way you know, oh, this stopped working. I need to replace it. Um, that's a good thing to look into. Oh, when I said scream bloody murder, some of them will actually make noise. Like that's how I knew my yep. UPS battery downstairs was bad because the UPS was screaming. <laughs> screaming with the warning light that says, my UPS battery is bad. Like, and the battery, replacing the battery in the UPS is way cheaper than buying an entire, like, there's like 30 bucks or something. I, I replaced them. They're these little square lead acid things. So they're, it's decidedly low tech and silly, but uh, worthwhile and, again, much cheaper than having to buy a new UPS. Yeah, it's basically little car batteries for you. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I'll, I will put a link in the show notes. I, after a while, um, getting like the big uh, APC brand ones, 
Um, I've had a lot of very good luck in recent years with CyberPower. I'll put a link in the show notes to the line that I keep buying. I've I've now bought, I think, three of these or four of them over the last uh, four years or so, and they've been wonderful. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you to our sponsors this week, Squarespace, Casper, and ExpressVPN. And we will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C-A-S-E-Y-L. ISS, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. thought of this too late and because it's in the after show we can't use the title but what i should have said but the phrase what i was looking for when talking about china was mutually assured consumption nice. oh, that is very good and i was like it was right on the tip of my tongue but i couldn't pull it out so i just moved on so what you're really trying to say is you're, you're trying to challenge marco to make that work somewhere just drop that in somewhere in the episode no i gotta i gotta google that someone have already must have thought of that that seems like an obvious thing did you mean mutually assured destruction? No, Google, I didn't. <laughs> How was that? Oh, man. Do I have to put it in double quotes? Let's see. Google on iOS. If you go to the Google web, google.com on iOS in the browser, there is a, te- and it happens if you just type in the address bar in like mobile Safari, you just type a search phrase there. You end up at a Google search results page, right? Whatever you typed in the address bar, like I just typed mutually assured consumption, ends up in this little rounded google search field within the web page you originally typed it in the address bar maybe it's still in the address bar i forget but that text is also in the little rounded search area on google.com right that little rounded search area i cannot figure out how to use i want to like (laughs) fix a typo or add a word and for whatever reason like i'm like my hands and fingers and brains are on on autopilot and i'm just trying to like you know, like I'm not thinking, you know, when you edit text in iOS, you're doing for so long, you're not thinking like, take your finger, put it on the screen, put the insertion, like you just do it. What you're thinking is, oh, I need to add ED to the end of that word. So you, you initiate the add ED to the end of that word iOS macro. And what happens instead on the google.com page is it like does another search or searches for the first auto completion or like it doesn't behave like a text field. And so that happens. It does some weird thing, like it auto-completes to the first guess on what I meant and goes off and does it. And I notice that it does it, and I hit the back button. And then I really concentrate, and I said, now engage your brain. Whatever it did before, make it not do that and add the ED to the end of that word. And very often, I can't figure out how to do it. I'm like, what does it want me to do? Do I tap and hold? Do I tap once? How do I edit the text in this search field? And I get so frustrated with it, and I fail. And what I end up doing is making a new tab and typing the correctly typed thing into the address oh, bar of mobile Safari again. 
I, I feel like I should oh, spend time and like decode how that thing's supposed to work. Like it's obviously thwarting something that I'm either consciously or unconsciously doing. But I can't, I can't freaking figure out how to edit text in that thing. <laughs> I mean, I gotta just say, I never Go, see man. this problem. Yeah, because I I use DuckDuckGo uh, by default everywhere, and also when I have to edit a search or refine what I typed. I just go back to the address bar and do it there. Like yeah. to me, like the address bar is my search box. Even after the fact, I never go to the one on the page in either Google or DuckDuckDo and, and edit it there. I always edit it in the address bar. So I'll try it one of these days. Like, see, I may be the only person who tries to edit it. Maybe it's not editable. Like it like there's this confluence of like fake text field, autocorrect, auto assumption, plus the the locality of the X thing to clear. Yeah, it could just be a lag thing because now that I'm doing it in a particular thing, it's like it works fine. What's the what's the problem? Like something happens where like it's not responsive or it's loading something or I hit I tap in the wrong spot with my fat finger and I get into this frustrating loop that I can't figure out. Anyway, that's my complaint about Google for the day. Mutually assured consumption. Did I spell? I guess spell it right and i'm on the desktop i can edit things easily uh, <laughs> well like it's not like ios or ios web browsers have problems with text fields i'm sure it's that google has overrode this with a thousand lines oh, of yeah, javascript no, it's, it's, to it do all sorts of crazy crap yeah it is not a standard search field yeah so the phrase definitely appears in many things they probably the reinvented past. typing freaking google remember the javascript scrolling those were the days they still do that, like scroll jacking. Like that's still a thing. Apple I know, still but does now it. It's G- GPU accelerated, so it's way yeah, better. right. Yeah, <laughs> Apple's product pages always do scroll jacking. It drives me nuts. Like, what was wrong with web pages? We had like so much of the web today. Like, I was using a thing earlier, and it was like it was some like you know AJAX progression through states of a form instead of just using forms, and you could tell by the browser activity that it was loading almost instantly. But then I had to wait for an animation of the page to fade in on each step. And I'm just like, we have gone backwards here. This is, this is not better. We have all the technology in the world now. All the networks are super fast now. And we're just wasting it all on superfluous animations and loading massive, like, you know, 10 megs of JavaScript. You do all sorts of crazy crap. It's like, the web sucks right now. Like, it's terrible. So much of web design is just awful. And it's not the fault of the technology. It's the fault of the people. Like, the technology is there to make great website experiences super easily, super lightweight, but people aren't using it that way because that's not, like, what's currently in fashion. What's currently in fashion is to waste as much as possible and make fancy things that don't work well and suck up tons of power and take time and break half the time. Like, what was wrong with just web pages? They were great. Why did we have to mess them all up? we had the same discussion back when like the first of apple's scroll jacking product pages appeared remember that i don't remember what the product was but like just i think it was the apple. 2013 mac pro was it was that the first one that was certainly yeah, one of the bad ones it was pro- <laughs> definitely prom i mean the certainly the current mac pro all the product pages do it now and the thing is for those type of things i i've come around to the idea that as a sort of brochure cool visual experience it's a fun thing for me i still think it's wrong for almost everybody because normal people are not appreciating the fun visual thing they just think this web page doesn't work like a normal web page therefore it seems broken and i'm confused about what to do which is why it's the wrong decision to do for a public facing web page but the people making it are i think in the same mindset as me is that you know it is a cool wizzy thing and if you are not confused 
by that, it can make a an appealing visual presentation. You still hope that there's a normal page somewhere with actual text on it for you to find the information you want. But for <laughs> sort of like a, you know, for as an advertisement, it worked. But I feel like it's it's the wrong move because nobody like your web page works different than every other web page. I don't like your web page. Like, yeah, but doesn't it look cool? It's like, yeah, but I'm confused about how it works or what it does or is there more of the page or I would never have guessed that by scrolling more this thing would be revealed and popped up and is the top of the page gone now? It's like it breaks people's mental model of how the web works. And if enough of those things come along, people just throw up their hands and we're back to like flash all over again where everything is an unpredictable, you know, custom UI and a square in the middle of a web page and you have no idea what you're going to get. I feel like we're already there. Like, like you know, like when when flash intros became a thing, <laughs> like back forever ago, they very quickly went out of style because we all recognized this is just a waste of people's time and bandwidth. Nobody wants to sit around and wait for this. Just give me the information. We don't need to be brought on a ride. And I feel like that should have happened <laughs> with all this scroll jacking stuff five <laughs> years ago, and just hasn't. And I don't know why it hasn't, but for some reason, this is all still common and acceptable. Do you remember when Flash, like, we got rid of, like, the the entry, whatever. I forget there was, a, there was a word for them, like the, not splash screen, but, like, anyway. We got rid of that, but still there persisted essentially entire websites that were themselves custom-made Flash applications. Like, there was no waiting to get to it. Where you got to was this inscrutable, weird Flash doohickey, right? So that's where we are with the the web stuff is very often like you're, you're not asked to wade through something to get to something. The thing you're trying to get to is itself a weird, nonsensical sort of... It's, it's not nonsensical, but it's like it's it's unlike what we expect as a web page. And also, mostly there's never any... Never, never anything for people to hang their mental hat on. Like, this reminds me of a thing that I understand. Therefore, even though it's different than other web pages, because it's like other thing that I understand, it's tractable. And normally the other thing that I understand is if there's some kind of, you know, not normally, but like one of the common ways you can give somebody something to hold on to is if there's a physical analog, if I can make sense of this, here it comes, spatially and physically speaking, oh, I see, it's kind of like three layers moving past each other. And like, if you can make heads or tails of it in that way, it's still not great, but you can figure it out. But the problem with mostly scroll dragging pages is there's no real world counterpart with which you're familiar that you can say, oh, I get it. It's just like X, right? Uh, for, to give an example, carousels named after a thing that has a physical reality and in general, even though they're weird, in-page carousels make sense to people. It's left or right, a series that you can envision it as either a circle or as a long horizontal line of pictures. And many, many websites, especially if they have lots of photos, have carousels. I think people accept those. It's not like a page. It's a, it's a different internal element. But there is a real-world analog that people understand and we accept them. But the Scrolljack Mac, Scroll Mac Pro page? try explain to me what those layers are and how they interact with each other you see it in new york times stories all the time people are always like ooing and eyeing over them like this makes no sense i have no idea how much movement on the scroll bar results in how much movement of which elements and how they transform and fade into the foreground and background and twist and turn like all those stories that people like that show statistics one screen at a time it's like you've just made the world's most fancy powerpoint transition with a scroll bar control (laughs) <laughs> which I don't I don't think is an upgrade. I mean, I guess I guess we'd be saying ooh and ah. I guess some people still do like them, but I feel like if I sent that web page to any person who was not into technology or web design, 
they would just consider it a slightly broken and weird web page. I don't know. The New York Times infographics can be really good. Like, wasn't uh, Overcast was in one of them recently that I thought was pretty well done. And I'm looking at the Mac Pro page now, God help me, and it does scroll jack in a few places, but it's not nearly as aggressive and obnoxious as it was on the original Trashcan Mac Pro, because I remember that being bad or, or am i thinking of the actually the 5k imac there was something that like you zoomed into yeah, a the 5k imac did it too yeah yeah I, i'm not sure which one was i mean the trash, trash game might have been first, first that's totally yeah yeah but one of them like i remember you zoomed into like the dis- or maybe zoomed out of the display or something like that and it was just it was clever the first time i saw it but then it was just annoying and i feel like apple has, has toned it back a lot which i appreciate because it used to be really really aggressive in years past and now it there's a couple of times where it's a little bit frustrating, but generally speaking, I don't think it's too bad. It's pretty bad. 